Hello and uh, welcome to this video. Today we're going to be talking about abortion with Danny from uh, Phil Talk. How are you, Danny? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, Josh. No worries. Uh, make sure you go check him out. Um, today we're going to be uh, talking about abortion as we um, suggested. However, we're going to be talking more about um, the moral um, side of the debate, not the legal side of the debate. Of course, there are going to be implications and crossovers between the two. However, we're going to just mainly focus on um, the moral side just because I think that it is perhaps the best starting point and the most important place to start off with. So we're going to be talking about a few things like a moral framework, how does realism or anti-realism uh, imply or what other implications on um, abortion. Uh, we're going to be talking a bit about some initial observations about the argument and of course um, we're going to go over some common arguments for pro-life and pro-choice. So um, let's start off with the moral framework. Um, Danny, what are your thoughts about um, anti-realism and its relationship with um, the pro-life and pro-choice debate. Yeah, it's really hard when you disagree with someone about what the good is, not to get into the nature of good, which is what, um, you know, in, in terms of what, how we should act, you know, what that means, we're going to be getting into like meta-ethics or value theory. Now, what I've noticed is that a lot of people that like to talk abortion don't like to talk about value theory or meta-ethics, at least in the public arena. So, um, I think there are implications in terms of how you might think of the debate or how to approach someone you disagree with if you're a realist or an anti-realist. So, but let's go ahead and maybe kind of uh, disambiguate between what what does it mean to be an anti-realist versus a realist. Now, there's a lot of ways you can do this. Uh, in a lot of the common way, the common way of making this distinction is subjective, objective uh, truths about what we should or shouldn't do. Um, now, I like to frame it in terms of our stances. So a lot of people, a lot of anti-realists, I think, mistakenly think that, um, well, if anti-realism is true, it's all a matter of opinion. There's no uh, really significant discourse to have. But I would say that, okay, yeah, on an anti-realist view, um, what you should or shouldn't do is going to be a function of your stances and what you want the world to be like. That might be true. But there's going to be a sense in which you want other people to have those same positions whereas in opinions you may not you may be indifferent so if like if my opinion you know the vanilla ice cream example is always good uh my my view is that when you're uh choosing an ice cream like i think i should choose vanilla but um i don't really i'm indifferent to other people uh choosing vanilla or not and so i think that's an important thing to point out under an anti-realist framework um, there are going to be certain values that we have that we kind of prefer other people to have. Okay. So my stance against, let's say, stealing from Walmart is unlike my opinion that vanilla ice cream is good in that I want other people to share my values about stealing from Walmart, right? Or take any other moral issue. So there's something that the anti-realist has to gain or lose in political discourse um, and moral disagreement. And so... Just because we might think, and I do lean anti-realist, um, just because we might not think there's like a, a, a moral fact independent of our stances, we think that it's still valuable to engage in moral discourse with others as to convince them or change their stances about how the world should be. Um, so it, it's just going to be from a slightly different angle. Now, you do lean moral realist. I didn't know if you, you want to speak to maybe how you might frame the debate in terms of realism or do you or 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 not but yeah 
Perhaps before I um, talk about um, the realist side, how would you perhaps go around kind of convincing somebody else who might not um, kind of agree with the anti-realist, or even if they were anti-realist, how would you go convince someone else that um, you should lean towards a certain kind of value that people should have or share? Yeah, I think there are basically maybe two ways that the anti-realist has. Uh, the third way, maybe the more realist is going to try to do. Um, maybe you can speak to the third way, but... Uh, so one thing that an anti-realist can do is not even talk about value at all. They can talk mm -hmm. about the descriptive facts. So there's a very simple example. Uh, suppose you like to drink coffee um, and you're about to take a sip of your coffee. And I say, no, you shouldn't drink the coffee. And as an anti-realist, I say that. And you're like, well, what do you mean? I'm going to drink my coffee. I want to drink coffee. Right? That's what I should do. I'm like, well, the coffee is poisoned. Now, that's what what is that going to do well you have a um a desire not to be poisoned not to get sick and i know that so instead of appealing to a moral fact that's sort of independent of our own stances our own views or even opinions what i'm doing to you is informing I'm, I'm informing you of a descriptive fact that's kind of true in a stance independent way that the coffee is poisoned and what that does is going to change your values right so i'm not even though I did say this is what you shouldn't drink the coffee, what I mean to say is something like, hey, I know that you don't want to be poisoned, right? I know that if you don't want to be poisoned, you have a reason not to drink that coffee. So what I can do is give you a piece of information that's non-normative or doesn't have to do with right or wrong, right? That the coffee has arsenic in it or whatever. And I know that that's going to change your psychology in a certain kind of way. And that's completely compatible with anti-realism. I think that's what happens a lot is that we inform each other of the descriptive facts in hopes that your psychological facts or your stances will change, okay? So in the abortion debate, there are a lot of pro-choice people that think that it's that what's ever in the uterus, it's a, it's a, it's a, a, a bundle of goo, you know? Mm -hmm. And so what you can do, for instance, as a pro-lifer is inform them, hey, did you know in a few months there are going to be organs and they're gonna, there's going to be heartbeat and there might even be some neurological structures, um, you're informing them of descriptive facts there in hopes that they're sensitive to the same things that you are. Um, and mm -hmm. so I think that's a, one way you could do it. Um, the second way, and I think this could work. It also could not work, but the I, one way you could do is show an inconsistency in their own values. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that once again, I don't have to appeal to the sense of value that's independent of the world or independent, sorry, independent of persons and agents. I could say, Hey, if you value X and you also value not X with respect to two uh, circumstances that are identical or near identical, you're being inconsistent. Um, and so you have a reason unto yourself to revise. So for instance, let's say um, you ask someone that's pro-choice, uh, do you, um, what do you think about causing pain to others? And they're like, oh, I don't value doing that. I want to do my best to prevent the amount of pain in the world or um, limit the amount of pain in the world, minimize it. And then you, you, you inform them that maybe fetuses, there's indications that fetuses have pain around seven months. I'm making that up. I'm, I don't know very much about the biology. Okay. Um, but let's just say, uh, well, now, um, and then they say, oh, okay, does it? Well, Okay, noted. 
<laughs> so, and then they continue with a particular type of pro-choice stance where nine-month abortions are permissible, morally permissible. Well, then you could say, look, then, okay, you're being a little inconsistent here. You said you don't, you want to minimize amount of the amount of pain in the world, but here you might be actually um, acting or out, out of accord with that value. And so um, what is the distinguishing factor between causing pain outside the womb versus causing pain inside the womb. And so what you're trying to do here is appeal to their values and trying to show an inconsistency. Now, uh, there we could maybe talk about that later, but that's an, another strategy. And then the third way is, I think, let's let's bracket manipulation and lying because you could always do that, right? Um, uh, the third way kind of plays into the realist hands. Here, you're going to mm -hmm. give some kind of philosophical argument that concludes what uh what's morally permissible or impermissible independent of anyone's values mm -hmm. um so those are broadly three ways that i that i see honest discourse about the issue so to review uh the first one you inform them that are descriptive facts in hopes that they're sensitive to it the second one is mm -hmm. showing an inconsistency in their values and then the third one is giving a conceptual argument that starts from premises that don't have to do with anyone's own uh, values or mm -hmm. a sense of good that's mind-dependent or stance-dependent. So that's how I see the potential ways someone could be convinced or change their mind in the either direction. Yeah. And as you suggested, the third one kind of is also quite similar to a realist um, approach. And, it's, and a realist approach, just to summarize very quickly, would be that there are um, objective uh, moral facts that um, you have to find or uh, point towards and and perhaps when you're trying to argue and if it's to be applied to abortion, it'll be perhaps to find some meta-ethical um, property or some argument or proposition and say, well, due to um, this understanding of the good or what is good, there might be some inconsistencies or abortion might be um, not very uh, favorable or good when it compares to or in relation to um, these metaethical um, properties. So it is perhaps more of a, I think someone might say, it, if it is true, if you can actually demonstrate that realism is true, it might be easier to convince other people. But at the same time, the realist debate is itself quite difficult to hold, I would say. So in some sense, that might also be quite something to think about. Just if you are perhaps a Christian, um, thinking about it, you'll probably have to also think about, well, is this realist stance correct or is that um, defendable? And that might also add some other implications if you're going that route. But it's just something you want to keep at the back of your mind. Now, yeah, and it's not like the uh, the realist can't do number one and two. Yeah, right? definitely. Mm -hmm. It's Yeah, and I think that the number two, the inconsistency, is also something quite important because I think a lot of times people do oftentimes might have those inconsistencies when it comes to topics like this. It's important to think through all your kind of your ideas and your stances, and then after that, kind of develop your uh, view and conclusion from from there. Yeah. Um, so now, what I've seen a lot is mm -hmm. when someone says, "Well, let me give in, you an argument for my position, whether that be pro-choice or pro-life," that seems to presuppose the third um, that when you give an argument for your position you're not just explaining why you hold the position because if you're just giving a narrative about, Hey, this is uh, what happened to me such that now I'm pro-life. You've kind of 
extracted the justificatory aspect of your view. And so mm -hmm. the idea is that when you provide an argument to someone else that, you know, you ought, they ought to be pro-choice or pro-life, you're going to have to consider premises that, that they could accept, not just that you would accept. So, um, the, uh, but you know, there are forms of argument where you're like, Hey, if, if it's the case that you hold to these values, then here's what you might be committed to. So. I definitely agree with that. Perhaps we can um, now move on a bit to perhaps some potential kind of um, starting points. Um, I suppose we touched upon this a bit before, but how do you think someone might change um, their view when it comes to comes to um, this debate? Because a lot of times it's almost as if people kind of talk to um, people and will never really change your views. And I think it goes to most topics in debates. When people have debates, you rarely actually change. How, how might someone change their views when it comes to pro-life? Yeah, so we have those three that we discussed. Mm -hmm. There is a fourth, and that's just being deceived or being, like, mm -hmm. mistaken or lied to. You know, someone can um, manipulate someone else into their view, bully someone else into their view. And I think that's actually what happens a lot. And not just – and I, I'm, I'm the fourth way. You know, being around people that um, think a certain kind of way, that has kind of – those their views might rub off on you. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that there's that way, you know, there's a reason why, you know, all these large cities um, have a, a certain kind of political mindset rather than mm -hmm. the rural areas in the United States, right? There's, there's, the, there is a bit of a hive mind going on mm -hmm. uh, to some extent, but yeah, I, I, I think that that's just to, I don't want uh, to reiterate, you know, that someone yeah. can show you that you're inconsistent Someone can tell you something you don't know about the the sign the the world outside of value, mm -hmm. the descriptive facts, and then that might cause you to change your mind. Um, and then someone might give you a conceptual argument. So a conceptual argument might be something like, um, well, let's just use a Kantian kind of uh, view that uh, that hey, there's this principle by which uh, we can apply to know what is what the good is, you know, and mm -hmm. so we can give a normative theory or an ethical theory about the secret ingredient to what makes something moral or not moral. So um, this is here we have, broadly speaking, four ethical theories that might convince people. Uh, you know, you got utilitarianism, which is a big uh, kind of a, a view that a lot of people um, take very seriously. They might not be full-fledged utilitarians, but they might have at least some kind of utilitarian calculus when they're evaluating issues like this. You've got virtue ethics, which, you know, here we're taking a model of a virtuous person and what they would characteristically do in, in these situations. You know, the whole what would you what would Jesus do is kind of like your virtue mm -hmm. ethics uh, example, perhaps. Then you've got a kind of deontological view where you're you're really uh, focused on duties and obligations themselves rather than deriving them from consequences or mm -hmm. anything like that. Um and then you've got contractualism, which is the idea that you can understand the rightness or wrongness or uh, of an option uh, of a of a decision, or how just a particular uh, law is in terms of uh, the social fabric, a contract theory. You know, um, so you've got those four views, and people are sensitive to all four of them, right? And mm -hmm. Um, you know, I'm, there are some people like where I lean towards the view that it's our, uh, there's this, uh, moral philosopher. Well, he's not just a moral philosopher. There's this philosopher named Bernard Williams. And 
Bernard Williams, if anyone who knows Derek Parfit, I don't know if you have you heard of Derek Parfit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think he uh, Derek Parfit, I think studied under Williams, um, mm -hmm. and Williams was against this idea that you could just provide a kind of overall conceptual framework for morality because he thought that um, our moral lives are way too complicated to find some secret ingredient to knowing what we should or shouldn't do or the secret ingredient that makes something right or wrong. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but nonetheless, the question is how are people might be convinced if it's not that they've been shown uh, to have inconsistent values, if it's not the case that they, they've, um, we've described the non-normative facts about the world, well, they might actually find uh, these these theories, these ethical theories, uh, plausible. And so, oh well, under utilitarian calculus, you know, this is the right thing to do. Under a Kantian view or a deontological view, this is what we should do. And so, you you get a lot of that in these discussions. You get, hey, I'm a utilitarian about this, or I'm, you know, I'm leaning towards virtue ethics. Jesus wouldn't do this, right? Whatever. Um, and so, I think those are some ways that I think people are really thinking about this issue. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And perhaps before, last question before we get started, and I recognize that this one touches perhaps a bit more on the legal side of things, mm -hmm. but if there were, let's assume there were no good pro-life or pro-choice arguments at all, should we, where should we start off with? Should we say, well, abortions should be prevented if we have no arguments, or should we say, yes, abortion should be allowed until we have the evidence on both sides? Yeah, so a moral realist or someone that holds to one of these uh, theories in some kind of way where the theory gives you stance independent uh, moral truths. Mm -hmm. Well, they're not going to buy into this idea that there can't be an argument. But let's say you found yourself in this this kind of conundrum that I have no arguments uh, that would obligate someone else to hold to my values or what I think should be permissible. Well, actually, I think this happens way more often than not. Um, and so what ends up happening is that it sort of becomes, instead of moral disagreement, it becomes more about moral opposition. So uh, imagine, you know, imagine a battle or a, um, a war, mm -hmm. you know, the idea is that they're really opposed, that each of the two sides are opposed to each other. They want to stop each other. They want to infuriate each other's will or frustrate each other's will. Um, and so now the question is, are, now, there might be some disagreements politically, but when they're fighting, it's hard to understand that in terms of disagreement. Um, so, you know, the guy points a gun at you, you point a gun at them, and the goal is to kill each other. What is their disagreement, right? But what they want is mutually exclusive truths, right? So, mm -hmm. um, And so the idea is that they have to prevent each other from succeeding or causing each other to fail. And so I think that's what it goes down to. If it's the case that there are no, you, your opponent or your ideological opponent has, in terms of the good, um, you have no arguments, they have no arguments for you, then you're just politically opposed. And now the next step is to frustrate their political aim. And so that comes in the form of uh, activism and campaigning against them and bringing other people to your cause, voting, right? And so... Mm -hmm. The idea is that there's gonna, there might be a point where, I'm going to use this as an example, you look at a zygote and you don't care about it, and they look at a zygote, they care about it. There's not really a, um, an argument to say who's right or wrong. Um, instead, they're just mo mutually opposed, and then they politically battle, so to speak.
-hmm. They don't, there's no more discuss what's there to discuss. There are different perceptions. There are different values that are opposed to each other. It's not like each of them are right or wrong. Um, and so, uh, but you can kind of get each other's perspective. There's like, that doesn't mean that, you know, you don't have to think of them as stupid, right? Like I'm, I'm sure Nelson really respected Napoleon and vice versa. Um, so I think that's one framing I, I'm sympathetic to at some point. You Once the consistency test and values doesn't work, if there are no arguments in support of your position and that you're just talking about your own values and the, and they're in, and everyone's aware of the descriptive facts, everyone knows what a fetus is and what's inside of the organs and the development stages and all of that. Then at that point, you know, you just, you just, you're just opposed to each other, right? It just becomes a political battle. It doesn't become anything philosophically interesting anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, something that some people um, sometimes um, raise when this question is developed, I'm not really agreeing with this, as I generally don't really agree with it, but they, they sometimes would say, give this argument and go like, okay, imagine you have a boat with no, with, when you, if you do not know whether there's life on it or not, will you just blow the boat up? Now, now that kind of is, um, refers to um, the, the abortion idea of like, if you do not know whether the fetus alive is alive or not, or whether there's something of value on that boat, or do you have the right, or is it morally right to um, destroy the boat anyways? What are your thoughts on this argument analogy? And do you think it's um, a good one? So let me make sure I understand it. You're saying that if someone is sort of ignorant of whether whatever's inside the room is alive, sorry, could you repeat that? Yeah. That so um, the analogy is that um, if imagine there was uh, something that perhaps there was a boat or something which was inconvenient or was perhaps um, endangering, maybe not endangering because that would perhaps seem to go a bit too far in the analogy, but if there was a boat or something which was inconvenient and you weren't really sure whether there was any life on it, like maybe a, you see a boat in the middle of the harbor blocking everyone or blocking some battleships and the battleships are like, okay, I can't leave the harbor unless I blow this boat up. Do they have the right to blow the boat up if they don't know whether there were sailors on board or something like that? In the same way, it would be something like, well, we do not know whether the fetus is alive or not. We don't know if it has any rights or not. It's but it inconvenience the mother. Like, should we just remove the fetus in this situation? Yeah, so this is a, a kind of airing on the side of caution. The idea is that we might we're, we are sort of ignorant um, about when exactly um, a fetus um, has mental states or can in, can recognize its pain when it has pain. That's that's going to be. I, I don't know the answer to that. I don't imagine anyone else does. We can guess. We can make inferences from behavior to these things, but we're not quite sure um, when exactly that happens. Uh, even there's a philosophical problem, even if, even when you have a full, you know, kind of a brain and a neurological system, there's still going to be difficulty uh, in understanding whether they are agents in the kind of way they can recognize their own mental states, because having mental states and recognize your mental states is, you know, you got to take that into account. And so we might want to err on the side of caution. What if, they recognize their mental pain. Um, what if they are agents in the same sense that we are just different sense, different powers um, with respect to how they can interact with the world? Then shouldn't we err on the side of caution? Yeah, and so I think that's the analogy you're trying to draw. Mm -hmm. um, and so we'll notice that one of the things that we're ignorant of is that is the descriptive facts that mm -hmm. a fetus has a mind, that it has a psychology of a certain type. 
or and and we're kind of presupposing that we value that kind of thing. And most people, I think, would be very sensitive to the fact that if um, if a, if a, uh, that a fetus can feel pain and recognize its pain, they would probably change their view. Um, and that's an example of the first case where you inform them of the descriptive facts. They already have values with respect to consciousness and um, things that can experience pain. So then they change their view. So I think that, yeah, I think there's going to be a point where it's ambiguous. It's not clear. And so maybe uh, maybe we should consider the reasons for why we should blow up the boat. If we're blowing up the boat because, you know, it's kind of ugly, <laughs> you know, that's not. But if we're blowing up the boat and you kind of it, because our own ship is in danger and even though there might be life, might be something there, our moral calculus might change. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think that I think people do think this way that, look, there's going to be a point where it's ambiguous about what kind of mind this thing has. And maybe we should consider the exact reasons that were uh, appealing to us to, I guess, justify uh, our actions. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And perhaps now we can move on and just start off with a few of the, the common arguments or perhaps the common the bad arguments that we hear on both sides of the, of the arguments. And, and before we go into perhaps some of the stronger arguments on the pro-life and the pro-choice side. Perhaps one of my arguments I dislike or I, I don't like too much is, is, of course, the common one that you hear in those um, feminist protests when they go on and say men should not have a say over what women do with their bodies. And I find that just kind of quite ridiculous and quite hilarious. But it is one of those things where it's like you're focusing on the, the, the biology of someone instead of actually what they're arguing for, because it seems that men and women both can have very good arguments based on any topic whatsoever. So there shouldn't be some kind of gender divide as to who on earth should be able to make an argument or not. Yeah, it's kind of imagine a med student, um, a male, Mm -hmm. right? After Mm -hmm. four years of medical school, three years as uh, three or six years as a resident in OBGYN. And then um, they see their first patient and uh, they're told, well, you're a man, you don't, you wouldn't know, um, you, you have no right to say what my healthcare is going to be like. Uh, that would feel pretty bad, right? Now, there is some, I think, we let's try to be as charitable as possible. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea is that there is an experience that I will never have, and that's ha- being pregnant and giving birth, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know what that's going to be like. I don't think I ever, I don't want, I don't want to ever will, right? But mm-hmm. uh, so I think that's where they're coming from, is that part of what we're talking about as men is, we're talking about a kind of experience that we'll never have to think of, uh, think about having. Now, mm-hmm. um, there, there is a sense in which we should be sensitive to that, but yeah. it's n- not to the extent that we should be so sensitive as to take a step back from the conversation. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's funny, the last time I talked about this issue, I was really criticized because I had a panel of four men talking about abortion. And... I only knew one woman on YouTube that would have even considered coming onto my channel. And so my credit, the criticism was, um, why Danny, why didn't you bring any women? I'm like, Oh, that's fine. I'll bring in my friend, uh, Rebecca. She's pro-life. Now that's not what they want. (laughs) They want a woman that's pro-choice to enter the fray. Right. Mm. That should, if I brought, I guarantee you this objection would, um they would not object uh 
I, I don't think this is what they want. Uh, that if I brought a panel of three women that were all pro- vehemently pro-life, you know, that's not yeah. what they want. Um, so there's a little bit of uh, inconsistency here. They, it's not that they want a woman in the conversation. It's that they want a woman that has, that shares their values and views. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, a, I don't know. That's kind of where I, I definitely stop taking this criticism seriously. Um, uh, but yes, we still should be sensitive. I think to people that cannot mm-hmm. give birth and not be pregnant, we should be sensitive to the fact that there are going to be people experiencing and, uh, this kind of thing that we were never experienced, but that does not kick us out of the discussion at all. And, and if it did, if someone's saying that it's did, it's, it's border, it's some kind of genetic fallacy ad hominem fallacy that, mm-hmm. that we're looking at here for they're saying we're wrong because we can't experience these kinds of things. Yes, I definitely agree with that. And I do think that the argument does come from, I think, good intentions when they're saying, okay, we want to have people who share our experience in order to talk about the situation. And, and it's, it's definitely understandable. Uh, perhaps, arguably, I'd be quite annoyed if some uh, random um, American footballer started arguing about why soccer wasn't a very um, good sport. I'll get pretty annoyed about that. But it is what it is, I suppose. And I think that in the same side, I kind of, um, talk, I dislike kind of the, some of the pro-life rhetoric when they always talk about um, pro-life. I think even the name pro-life itself is a bit, um, I, I suppose, misguided. Of course, it, in some sense, it does imply that the other side, the pro-choice side, doesn't support life. Or they always like to call the other side murderers. And that's not exactly the, that's not exactly the mental state which the other side is actually holding. They're not really arguing that we should go kill people. It's more just saying that, well, we value um, a certain choice or we value a certain action over over the potential or or even just the fetus in general. Yeah, um, I, I think that what you're talking about, one of, the, I guess, my experiences, my negative experiences with pro-life, um, from the pro-life side, and remember, I do lean pro-choice, so I'm, I'm coming at it from that perspective, but um, is that they actually have a powerful tool here with respect to their language. Um, you know, oh, you're, you're for killing babies. You're for killing children. You know, <laughs> I'm just, you know, they have a powerful way that they can frame the, ba- the debate linguistically. Um, uh, so I think that they have to understand that we don't see it. Um, we don't see a zygote as a child. And if you want to call it a child, I mean, you're going to have different responses. My personal response is you can call it what you want. Call it an innocent human crying child starving in the womb zygote, right? That's fine. I'm just not going to have the same sensitivities towards a zygote than a toddler or even an eight-month-old fetus. So, um, you know, so I think that they, they should be sensitive to the fact that they're not really giving an argument when they're saying you're killing a child that you're going to have to get us to be committed. Once again, commit us to something like um, zygotes are children. All children are valuable in this kind of X, Y, Z fashion. And so now, now you have us, right? If we can, if we can, if you can sort of get us to accept those premises, then you've got an argument against us. But Mm -hmm. just to say you like killing children or that you're baby murderers is not an argument. It's, um, it's not how we see the issue. Uh, we see the issue is far more complicated than that. Now, I will say that there are pro-choicers that um, don't really think about the issue very well and will actually say, yeah, I'm fine with killing children or whatever into the womb. 
And I'm I don't lean. That's why I say I lean pro-choice. There's I think I think pro-choices can be um, sensitive to the fact that many pro-lifers do see what's in the womb as a child, right? So um, the, there is a rhetoric on both sides, language on both sides that's highly manipulative and can be very very convincing um, to to within either uh, aisle, I guess. But yeah, I didn't know if you want to say something to that. No, I think that that kind of just summarizes quite quickly just the initial kind of arguments. Just if you're if you're watching this and you, you fall on both sides, just perhaps refrain from these arguments and maybe use the bit of the stronger arguments that we we're going to cover right now. But of course, if you have your own novel argument, that's also very cool as well. Just perhaps don't fit them into the ad hominems or a bit of the mislabeling of um, certain facts. Now, come in, let's start off with coming up pro-life arguments. Um, these ones I've just pulled off the internet and see, and I've just been like, what are the best arguments, or at least what are the most common ones, so we can have a bit of a discussion. First one is the fetus is a living being, where a life begins at conception. And I think that this is quite an interesting argument, because I, I've been reading a lot about it, and it's and a lot of the scientific kind of consensus right now, and I, I'm wary that neither of us are extremely um, adept at scientific knowledge, at least when it comes to this, but it does seem to suggest that the f- the fetus does have um, at least properties which resemble living beings, maybe not the full kind of scope, and of course at different timings, but it does seem to develop towards um, uh, a, a, f- a human living being, and as time goes on, it does kind of develop um, human properties, perhaps, or living properties, like, um, like respiration, like um, sensitivity. Um, I think um, there was a study which said at at a certain time, I can't remember exactly when it was, but they 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 were sensitive to vibroacoustic like kind of stimulation. Like if you put some UV thing or something like that, they will start moving or something. And and there also are like excretion, nutrients, and other stuff which slowly kind of develop into, um, or at least they slowly have these properties as time goes on. And and that is one of the arguments that uh, people would say is that well, yes, I mean maybe at the start it doesn't develop these uh, things, but but at the same time it seems that um. The, the ability to carry out these life processes is is found within um, a fetus. And you could say, well, it's only potential um, life processes. But at the same time, you could say a baby can't reproduce, but doesn't mean they're not a living being because they can't reproduce as well. So in, say, in the same way, they could say, well, it's also about the potential kind of um, life processes. I don't even know how to pronounce processes. How do you do it, Danny? Uh, isn't the British way of doing it is processes? Uh, here we say processes. processes so. Process in the UK it's process. In the UK it's process. So I don't know if you want to stick to the UK pronunciation. <laughs> well, well, either way, my one, my initial, my initial processes did not fit either of them. So <laughs> it is what it is, I guess. What are your thoughts on this first argument? Yeah. So the argument, sort of, in order to run the argument, I guess there's some kind of categories of individuals within the human species or individuation. Um, so broadly, I think there are three categories that we could talk about. Um, mm-hmm. And this is kind of, you know, contested slash people draw categories different, might draw categories differently from me. But how I see it is that there's something like human life, human beings and human persons. Okay. Mm-hmm. So human life is just generally you know, skin cells, that's human life. Anything that's indicative or can engage with, you know, that can undergo homeostasis, um, go through mitosis or meiosis, 
um, that can potentially mutate or evolve. Um, those sorts of things, that's going to kind of qualify as human life. The kind of like biology 101 textbook, they have like eight or nine um, qualities of life. And cheek cells are going to exhibit those things just like you and I are our own yeah. bodies, right? So, um, but that's not, we don't really care about that distinction so much. We don't, in the sense that we don't value, you know, every time I scratch, you know, I'm killing lots of, lots of human life, right? Uh, human cells. Uh, and we pay no attention to it. That's not what we care about. Now, where it starts to seem like it matters is this human being idea. And it's very difficult, I think. Um, very, very difficult to kind of clearly outline the necessary and sufficient conditions for being a human being. Um, now, and again, if we appeal to the scientific consensus, uh, human development um, begins at conception. Now, a lot of people use that to kind of say, hey, then this is where human being starts. Sperm and egg, those, that's just kind of human life. It can potentially become a human being, but once there's fertilization and all that, we've got a human being because that's when development starts. Now, okay, I'm fine with that. I mean, uh, there's a couple things. Um, what are what are the biologists mean exactly? I understand that they're saying that's when it starts. Um, I'm not so sure about what they mean. And other than something like there is a kind of, number one, there is a sort of biological end in mind, right? If you have a sperm and an egg separate and let's say conditions that preserve their homeostasis, okay, they're not going anywhere, okay? They're going to stay sperm and egg until they age out and die, okay? But a zygote is going to be different. Right in conditions that could maintain the homeostasis of the thing, it's there isn't a kind of biological end. It's disposed to becoming something like you and I, and so I think that a lot of people privilege that. In fact, to such an extent that they identify with the zygote, just like in the way that I might identify with the toddler that I was twenty. How old am I? Oh my God, twenty six years ago when I, when I was around a toddler age identify with that toddler, people will start to identify with things like zygotes because of that dis biological disposition. Um, so that might be something that you're sensitive to. Also, the second criteria by which I can understand a human being in the biological sense is in terms of unique uh, genetic information that, than that of the mother. Um, so those two factors I'm fine with. I mean, if, I think I am sensitive to that. Uh, you know, I think there is going to be a sense in which, oh, if someone had just squashed your zygote, we would be in a better world, right? Um, that's far less, that's far more offensive than saying that if only we stopped the sperm that fertilized the egg, right? Um, mm -hmm. Although I could still be sensitive to that, right? But um, the, yeah, so I think that's what they mean. Now, phil philosophically, uh, you know, people might have different views about what's going to be understood in terms of a human being. Now, I'm, I hope for any Muslim out there, I don't mean to straw man your position, but um, and I know I'm not. Let me let me just say what I'm not saying. Um, I think that a Muslim could hold to the, the these conditions as being human being, but they have a they have a uh, I think in the Quran they have a specific time when the soul enters the body. 
mm-hmm. you know. Um, so another way you can understand human being is when the soul enters the body, when there becomes a an embodied mind. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so here now we get into a lot of messy stuff. Um, you know, uh, maybe the naturalist might not use the term soul, they'll use mind. Uh, but the idea is that some people think that at the moment of conception, a soul, or at this, at the second trimester, a soul, and then there is your um, sufficient condition for a human person, or sorry, human being. Because souls might not have rational faculties. Uh, according mm-hmm. to a lot of theologians, you could have a soul with no rational faculty. Um, but that's, again, it depends on what you mean by soul. I'm sort of, I think the concept's somewhat elusive for me, but, um, yeah, so you have all these, you can have, you might have all these like metaphysical conditions for human being that are going to be auxiliary to the conditions that, um, make it such that you're a person rather than just a human being. Some people will then just say that human beings are persons and persons are human beings. But I think for myself, I like, I think that there is something unique about psychology with respect, uh, there's something unique about psychology than body or bodily dispositions. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there is a distinction there that I'm sensitive to. So that's why I create that third category of personhood. And sometimes in the literature, they don't even try to define personhood. And they and, and, and they only go so far as that which, uh, that which deserves moral considerations in this mm-hmm. debate. So if a zygote had the sort of moral considerations that you uh give to me it's a person okay we don't care about we don't want to get into the nitty-gritty of psychology and maybe these other conditions but the point is that when we give that moral consideration that's going to be a sufficient condition for a human a person a human person um i like to i think that what what the way i use the term is when i refer to person i refer to a kind of psychology uh, specifically Mm -hmm. a psychology in which you can recognize yourself. You can see, you can, um, you have certain, maybe I want to say identitarian commitments, commitments that you have that if you were to cease to have, you'd sort of have an identity crisis, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those are three categories and of, of uh, that we can talk about, um, you know, humans in or human life, human mm-hmm. being, human persons. And so this argument about, zygotes or um fetuses i should say are human beings uh you know that's kind of what where they have to start they have to start with these delineation delineations or these distinctions sorry i messed up that word um and then sort of describe the 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 sort of um value that they each category might have mm-hmm. now of course this kind of raises another question which is kind of like well where does does do humans have an intrinsic value and also is there an intrinsic value to human life or is there a right to life in some sense now of course this is a question kind of um something which is debated upon a lot and i'll just like to hear your stances do you think that humans have an intrinsic value or or is it more or is it or are humans more just a means which are kind of to be used or something along those lines or none of the above I'm muted. I was muted. Um, I, you are talking to an anti-realist. I, when I start to hear the word intrinsic, um, <laughs> I, you know, my ears go up. But um, I think what you mean is, uh, do are humans valuable where to where they're not a means to another accomplishing another goal <laughs> or value? Or um, 
I think that to me as an anti-realist, that's going to depend on the person, but uh, mm -hmm. certainly there are people that will look at their children, look, even consider their zygote as ends. And I think mm -hmm. that's compatible with an anti-realist framework. Um, what that mm -hmm. means is that they have a fundamental value that they did not infer to. So how, as an anti-realist, this is how I might think about value that you can only infer a value from another value. Okay. Mm -hmm. So if you value getting to work and then you value, well, then you might value getting to your car and turning the ignition. Now the, the second value turning the ignition, it comes, it's, it's a means to the end of, of going to work, but you see, even going to work is an, a, a means of acquiring wealth and capital. Mm -hmm. And so you're going to, so then you keep on asking, okay, why do you want wealth and capital? Because I want to support my family. Right? And then you, why do you want to support your family? And then there's going to be a point where the, there's no more inference. Okay. Mm -hmm. There's going to be a point at which my belief is that the world just gives you a value. You perceive a value. You mm -hmm. do not infer to it because the idea of inference is that there's some logical entailment. Okay. Mm -hmm. Perception is, can be considered inferential to some extent, but there's a sense of perception where you look outside your window and you see something you didn't infer to it. Mm -hmm. Right. So the world is a certain kind of way and it gives you a belief. I think values work similarly. Um, and so I think for many people, they will treat certain human beings, even human life in general as ends that, that there are going to be, uh, all sorts of means by which they accomplish that uh, something about that um, thing that they 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 value irreducibly. Um, so absolutely, I just don't want to understand it in terms of a realist kind of sense of mm -hmm. uh, intrinsic value, right? And mm -hmm. intrinsic value has realist vibes to it, but I think mm -hmm. that what you meant was, hey, their ends and means are people just ends, um, or sorry, just means to an end, or is there a sense in which we can say that fetuses or human beings are ends in themselves? I think that we can say as an anti-realist that, yeah, you can treat people as ends, but that's going to be dependent on your perceptions of value. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And I do think that even when we talk about more like the intrinsic value in the realist sense, the reason why I think that could also be raised as an important kind of factor is that it does appear from at least the pro-choice and pro-life people that I've talked to that both sides seem to both appeal or at least believe in a form of an intrinsic value in a realist yes. to human yeah, beings. It seems even they're doing that constantly, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and the question there is just kind of, just as a side note, just to say, well, where on earth did, did this belief of this intrinsic value come from in a realist sense? And number two is like, well, where does this intrinsic value start off with? So if you even enter into that kind of, okay, I accept that there is this kind of realist intrinsic value to human beings. Well, if someone argues that it only comes from a certain function of the human brain or it only comes from a certain kind of property, then the question can go back and say, well, what if someone who actually has already been born had, like loses, like if they go into a coma or whatever, and then they somehow lose their consciousness or whatever, they can't think anymore, or maybe they're in a coma for life, does that mean they lose the same value and that you could just euthanize a person as well? So. I mean, I, I suppose it's just an important side note to just bear in mind. It's like, well, if you if you do indeed attribute this intrinsic value to human life, you also have to think about the implications of this intrinsic value, both on the pro-life and the pro-choice sense. Is there anything you want to add to that kind of observation before? Yeah, um, so I will definitely say that people 
uh, will say that they're realist on both sides. Uh, so what they want to say is that some realists might say on pro-life side is that human beings are intrinsically valuable and in a stance independent way. What the pro-choicers might appeal to is bodily autonomy is uh, everyone has a intrinsic right to bodily autonomy. Um, so the idea is that both sides can't are, are, are both sides are compatible with moral realism. And I think one of the things is that pro-lifers think that they have the monopoly on realism, but this mm -hmm. is not my experience, right? My experience is that both sides will try, will use realist language, um, or, uh, will label themselves as a moral realist and, then they'll just apply the value differently, I guess, or see, argue that they they got their everyone has their intrinsic value and they want to put it in different places, I suppose. But I will say on a side note that um, there's a friend of mine, uh, Lance Bush. He's about to be Doctor Lance Bush in January. He's at Cornell. He um, he has a master's degree in philosophy and is getting his degree in psychology. And it's emphasized his work is on moral psychology, and he. He's pretty cool because he does experimental stuff with these kinds of things. So he does surveys on how people think about the a moral language and what they might mean by objective, subjective, real and not real in the in light of these issues. And his research research shows that it's actually largely inconclusive about what people mean when they say objective, subjective. They'll um or real or not real or stance dependent, stance independent or external value and all that. So, so it's, it's not, it's not so clear to me that everyone is talking in a, in a realist kind of way, but there are definitely people that are talking in a realist kind of way. And it's not uh, exclusive to any particular side. Mm -hmm. And perhaps moving on, um, there, all, there is this argument that, um, contraceptions and of course this does not apply to um cases of rape but you could say contraceptions can be used to prevent pregnancies response as a result responsibility should be taken um in regards to um the fetus and as a result if you do get pregnant during consensual um sex that it should be seen as kind of responsibility you could have done you should have used a condom or something along those lines of course if the condom doesn't work then well that's another exception but um, some people would say that that's the case, and as a result, you shouldn't abort just because um, you've messed up or were not responsible. Yeah, I I think that um, this is a interesting consideration um, because it has implications on how people construe responsibility, and that's mm -hmm. just that's actually a really hard term to pin down. Um, but uh, the idea here is. Well, first of all, as far as my what I know about contraceptives is that there's not any of them that are 100%. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So there's going to be questions about if you have sex, even while using contraceptives, and there's a 1% chance that, um, uh, that you will get pregnant. Are you responsible for the pregnancy if it's the case that you do get pregnant? Very difficult question. Um, and there are thought experiments you can run to show that, well, there might be a sense in which you could be responsible. Um, mm -hmm. For instance, uh, I'm going to, this might come up silly because I'm making this up from the top of my head, but uh, suppose um, you do something like, ah, okay, suppose you go gamble and there's a 1% chance that you will lose all of your wealth, everything, right? 
uh, but you have a 99% chance to make 500 bucks, you know, and you take that gamble and then you lose everything. There, there seems to be a sense in which if you knew about the probabilities um, that you're in taking the risk, if you were to uh, lose all of your wealth, you would be responsible. Now, mm-hmm. that gets really complicated in terms of how is the necessary and sufficient conditions by which you're like outlining all those conditions by you're responsible. But that's just to kind of get an intuitive sense that, oh, well, they could have just not gone to the casino and gambled and mm-hmm. they would have dropped all their wealth, even if it was just a 1% chance. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I think that uh, this is something that a lot of pro-choicers want to say is irrelevant, but I'm not so sure if it's completely irrelevant. Um, it might just come back down to saying that, yeah, they're responsible for the pregnancy, but who cares, right? The point yeah. is that they're going to have a right to terminate the life inside the uterus. And so, um, but it's something I think that a lot of pro-lifers are sensitive to. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I think, yeah, I think that this is something um, that's worth exploring, right? If it's the case mm-hmm. that everyone agrees that, I mean, most pro-choicers are, are, are not, don't think abortion's ideal, but let's say you convince all the pro-choicers that killing even a zygote is this kind of moral, um, a morally impermissible thing, then then you, you're going, even using contraception and all of that, right? If you get pregnant, you're going and you decide to, to um, kill uh, a zygote. Uh, that's to say you decide to do something in, uh, morally impermissible. Uh, there's going to be a sense in which you would still be responsible. Um, mm-hmm. Like you're not going to be able to appeal to the fact you didn't want to get pregnant, that, that that's mm-hmm. going to be some kind of factor that it makes it suddenly permissible. Like, unlike in the case of uh, sexual assault, right? Sexual mm-hmm. assault, then suddenly you're not responsible. I don't see how you would be responsible for the pregnancy, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's something there in terms of the, of the moral calculus that I think pro-lifers are sensitive to, and I can see that. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And perhaps the final argument is a future value argument, though I do think we've touched upon it a bit before already, but perhaps we can just elaborate on it a bit more. Yeah, very briefly, very, very briefly, the idea is that we talk, you know, the the idea is that a zygote is disposed to becoming something like that mm-hmm. single adult human being. So mm-hmm. um, that creates a kind of value that a sperm does not have if a sperm just kind of remains static in a in a in a area where it can maintain homeostasis so mm-hmm. it's true that a sperm can become a zygote which then can become a human being but there's a different causal power that zygotes have that sperm and egg do not have and mm-hmm. so people are going to catch that in terms of uh future value you know there's going to be a lot of things you're going to gain from just le- letting a zygote uh develop in the womb and 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 get birthed you know you're going to get a person that can have experiences and 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 your pain and pleasure and hopeful and usually you know the reports are that people are generally happy with their existence not always um so you you have a lot of potential here and so people pro pro lifers are sensitive to that mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. now let's turn to some of the pro choice arguments there's a there's a few ones which we can go on i think these were the most um, common one on the bbc or something like that so i've i've chosen the, the top few and if we cover any of them then cover any of the other arguments while we're going over some of that. It's fine. The first thing is um, women have a right to decide what to do with their own bodies, the, cl- the classic argument from bodily autonomy. Um, perhaps you could um, develop this argument a bit and I'll perhaps play devil's advocate at, t- at times. 
Yeah, so the bodily autonomy argument is mm-hmm. usually when people run it, it's usually so underdeveloped. Um, mm-hmm. So obviously, we would restrict bodily autonomy in cases where someone is trying to kill you and or you're trying to, you know, like, so the kind of bodily autonomy that they're talking about is sort of biologically unique that it's sort of, and we're going to get to the violence analogy, but it's not that someone is like putting you in handcuffs. It's that your physiology is being used to sustain another physiology. And so people think Mm -hmm. that that distinction matters uh, in a way where putting someone in handcuffs for trying to assault you is a little bit different. Um, it's not like your, your bodily autonomy is being con- restrained in some broad sense where you can't move your hands, but your, your mm-hmm. bodily fluids, your organs are not being utilized. Uh, and so some people are sensitive to this fact, um, mm-hmm. that, uh, and we'll talk about it more in the violinist analogy. Uh, well, let's just go. Do you want to go ahead and do the violinist analogy? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. That's, um, com- um, compare it, add that with ex- kind of the same thing. Yeah. Almost. So the idea here is that you wake, uh, I'm going to go as brief as I can, but um, it's it was written or forwarded by a person named Judith Thompson, I think in 1971. I could be wrong about that date, but in the early 1970s, the idea is that you find yourself in a hospital bed, kind of, you know, um, well, un, you didn't know that what happened in the last 24 hours, uh, but you, you're finding out you're, that uh, your organs are being used to sustain the, the kidney function of a, a professional violinist, a very good one at that. Um, and uh, you you need to be there for a certain amount of time. I, I forgot what Thompson's uh, first amount of time, but let's just say nine months to make it easy. Uh, and uh, the idea is that you have this option to be like, screw this and yank out the cords and leave. Um you were also there against your, you know, against your uh, consent. You were kidnapped, right, in a kind of way mm-hmm. where you, you you didn't like initially choose to support the violinist uh, kidney function. You you woke you woke up to that fact. So uh, that's just to put it as brief as possible. So a lot of people analogize this to you know sustaining a, a fetus as a mother. Yeah, that your anatomical functions, your physiology is supporting another physiology, like in the case of um, the violinist. And they want to say that you have the moral right to get up and leave and let the violinist die. Uh, so I didn't know if you wanted to, to kind of give your views mm-hmm. about the analogy. Mm-hmm. I think it's quite a good analogy for um, cases of rape, because I do think that that is perhaps a bit more similar um, to the situation of rape, I think that the question about moral responsibility, of course, of kind of like if if you had sex, knowing the risks that could perhaps change a factor away from saying instead instead of just completely waking up without any knowledge at all, without being kidnapped, um, that might that perhaps would not be the same situation as if someone had consensual sex with someone and then the condom didn't work or they didn't use protection and then they had a kid. That might be a bit of a different situation. I also think it's quite interesting that they kind of describe it as a violinist because in that situation you could almost make the case that the violinist is indeed a separate human being. A lot of times when people say, well, as kind of as an observation, women have the right to do what to do with their bodies. You could almost make the case that the fetus or the violinist in the situation isn't a quote unquote their bodies perhaps. And I do think a case can be made almost that the fetus isn't part of a woman's body in the sense that it has separate human DNA. It's, 
it, it of course is reliant on um, someone and it depends on what you mean by their body but it seems to me that if I was in a hospital bed I'm inside the hospital I'm connected to the hospital because I maybe I'm in a coma or something like that it doesn't really mean I would say that I am part of the hospital perhaps in the same way that you'll say a fetus is part of the the human the female body so perhaps it would in some sense you'll have to develop the idea that well the fetus is part of the human body in this in the same which is not dependent on either their dna or the fact that they're connected and dependent on life dependent on the, on the female for life support so there has to be perhaps a further kind of clarification or development there yeah i think that uh so the first part of what you're saying i think a lot of people would be sensitive to the fact that if you had chosen or allowed for the circumstances where you would find yourself in the situation where you're supporting the violinist, then it seems like you, you should kind of stick with, with what you're, you had committed to doing or what you were all right with doing a lot. Um, so that it seems like, yeah, I'll support your, like, it's like a, I mean, there are cases where like, I mean, this sounds horrible where, um, someone would donate their, want to do, want to donate their kidney to someone else. And then the last minute pull back, you know, like that sounds horrible, right? Imagine all the news. Oh, I finally get a kidney. I can live. And then like five seconds before the transplant, they'd back out, you know, that's kind of, that doesn't seem, you know, very, uh, moral, but I, um, yeah. And then the, the second thing I do like about one thing I do like about the violence analogy is that it's, Go, it's, it's, it's sort of affirming that, yeah, fine. Let's call a fetus a human being, even a human Mm -hmm. person, right? A lot of the debates, uh, you know, argue what is a fetus, what is a zygote, all that. And that can get kind of cumbersome. What I like about this argument is that let's just go ahead and give it to, um, people that are pro-life in that sentence. Let's give it a personhood. You can, we still have a problem. Even if it's a person, there's still this kind of issue where it seems like you're, 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 it's permissible to pull the plug um, or not support the violinist physiologically. So uh, that's one thing I do like about it. It kind of dodges all this muddy category stuff with zygotes, fetuses, and um, embryos and gets to like, okay, personhood, that's fine. We can still be pro-choice. And so that's one thing I do like about it. But yeah, those are two things that I think are, are, we're good to bring up definitely i think that um the i do think it does raise quite an interesting question because even if it isn't necessarily an argument could almost even if you accept it isn't necessarily bodily autonomy in the same sense that it is your body there still is kind of problems about um the situation and perhaps to develop it a bit more there's this idea of the fetus cannot feel pain in the and of course, that's kind of like a biological one as well. But some people might argue that the fetus wouldn't know even if you did um, abort them. And perhaps imagine the violinist was in a coma and, and was completely insensitive to the rest of the world. Like, and and if you um and if you unplugged yourself, they would just die. They had they would be none the wiser about what on earth happened because they thought they probably thought they were dead before for anyway. So, I mean, what do you think of this argument? Because it does seem to suggest that it the consequences aren't really strong, and perhaps utilitarian might um enjoy or at least uh, be sympathetic to this position yeah i actually have a unique position on this i think um Mm -hmm. i think people are way more sensitive to pain behavior than they are pain um so Mm -hmm. let me describe the difference right so i get um a vaccine and i get you know pricked right and i grimace out right Mm -hmm. i'm in a state of pain but i also have behaviors that 
follow mm -hmm. from my pained state, my grimace. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there's the behavior and then there's the pained state. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm fine with, I actually, I care about pain behavior, even if there's no pain. Um, mm -hmm. Have you ever seen the show Westworld? No. Okay. Well, it's a very good show, especially the first season. If you like philosophy of mind and ethics and all that, highly recommend it. Um, mm -hmm. It is one of the few shows that you can really think deeply about as if you're philosophically inclined. Anyways, uh, let me say this really fast. Um, they've created a amusement park where they made lifelike robots. In fact, the robots have real flesh up to a certain point before they get to circuitry. Okay. And they mm -hmm. have all the behaviors that humans could ever have, right? It seems like, uh, but they don't, they're, they don't have a brain. They have uh, a, a processing unit, right? Um, and so people go to the amusement park and they do what they want. They rape them, they shoot them, they do horrible things to them. Okay. And so it's so like get your, you know, your sinful nature out, right? Express it as much as you want. Now, it, in some of the scenes, even though the audience and myself included know that these robots don't feel pain, we're disturbed. Why? We're very disturbed when we, when I, I was very disturbed when I, found out that they were raping some of these robots because I'm sensitive to pain behavior, right? That uh, seeing crying and grimacing and begging, right, was very painful for me to, to, to listen to and, and, and see. And so forget it. I'm fine with saying, okay, fetuses, as, uh, fetuses or babies and infants, they don't have pain. But I care about that pain behavior. If you uh, prick or torture a baby if it doesn't have pain that's fine but if it screams that's what i'm you know maybe i'm disposed to thinking that it has pain but you can tell me that it doesn't have pain i'm still going to be disturbed i might still stop you in the same way that i would stop perhaps in in, in these circumstances in worst world someone from raping one of the robots or hurting one mm. of the robots you know and so i think there is this thing that uh in the abortion debate that people are missing that we're sensitive to not just pain but pain behaviors. And so mm -hmm. um, I think that's something to consider. Mm -hmm. And perhaps do you think that the reason for why we are kind of sensitive to pain behavior is might be because it is representative of the person who carries out the, the action which induces the pain behavior? Because it, it, it seems that, okay, even if the person or the robot isn't feeling any pain when they're getting raped or being shot, it does seem to be a representation that a person who is carrying out the shooting or the raping is himself somewhat morally unjustified, or at least. And of course, this brings in somewhat realist kind of terminology, but at least he is carrying out something which is quite um, atrocious, perhaps, when he's yeah. willing to um, carry out such an action. Do you think, like, perhaps where do you think this kind of um, distaste towards the person comes from? or the action comes from? Is it a more reflection of the person himself or is it the action itself? It could be both. I mean, some people will, will think, you know, will, do, will think that way. And, uh, but other people like me, I'm, you know, I mean, yes, I'm going to have, I'm going to cast moral asp uh, uh, aspirate. Or I'm going to evaluate this person as kind of like a monster when they do it. <laughs> though they don't experience pain, but even if, um, I'm also just disgusted by certain <laughs> kinds of pain behavior. And to me, for me, that's irreducible. There's no, it's one of those values that I have that I can't, 
give you a, I can't give you an, I can for, I can't mm -hmm. find another value by which I'm inferring to it's just kind of given mm -hmm. to me. I'm disgusted by, you know, the, if I were to see, I mean, like you can just imagine a kid pulling legs off an insect, right? I might not even think mm -hmm. the insect has pain. I'm just pulling legs out of, you know, a animals, right. Just bothers me. Right. I don't, what, yeah. I don't care if the beetle is in pain or not. Right. So, um, I think that that's for, for someone like me, it's going to be partly irreducible. I can't, I'm not going to mm -hmm. be able to reduce it any further. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Now, of course, there's another argument, which is the right to abortion is vital for, um, gender inequality, gender equality, mm -hmm. um, which is kind of like, I'm not sure whether it's um, a good argument or not, to be honest, when it comes to this idea, it's important for gender equality, because it seems that, it, of course, it depends on what you mean by gender equality. And it, and it might be saying, well, I don't really understand what this argument is about. Maybe it's saying that, okay, the male is, perhaps the male doesn't have to give birth that also in order for the female to have a gender equality with the male, then they should also be able to not give birth at all if they wanted to, or something along those lines. Though at the excuse me, though at the same time, you can I suppose suggest that well, people should be seen as equal. When people say gender equality, it should be defined as equal value instead of equal kind of capacities, because it seems that people are indeed different. So I mean, it it does seem a bit kind of confusing how where this argument comes from and what they're arguing for. Yeah, I I mean, some people think that. And I mean, this is more of a political thing, I think, mm -hmm. more than a, yeah. a moral thing, um, for me, at least. And this, I mean, it's moral in the sense that, like, we, we have to evaluate how we should correct inequalities in society. But it's not like the idea is that this is in the context of inequalities within a broader social fabric. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is that if we make uh, abortion illegal, who who is that going to um affect more than any other person uh at least experientially um it's gonna affect females uh, more than males experientially and i'm using that kind of loosely now we have we try to like you know even the odds we talk about we can talk about child support you know as a way of you know let's say we made abortion illegal well then now if you are the biological father you have certain legal obligations to um, the fetus or the baby after birth, and so you're, you're, we have some way of evening out the um, the genders. Uh, but the point is, is that it, whatever your view is about pro life or pro choice, this is something that's going to <clears throat> experientially affect uh, people that can females um, mm -hmm. more so than males. And so that seems like uh, that kind of goes back to are um we agreed that it's not fair or it's not our our if we had arguments on for whatever position about this and just because just because we're male doesn't make those arguments bad or mm -hmm. doesn't mean that we can't participate in the discussion but here it's saying that please be sensitive to the fact that whatever you decide on a legal standpoint um is going to affect um females more than males and on an experiential level so please add that into the calculus. I think that's kind of how I'm understanding it. Mm -hmm, definitely. And on the side note, before we move on to the next argument, I would just like to suggest, that, or at least uh, kind of give a side note about um, what happened with divorce in the USSR, because at uh, one time, and, and I think it's because like a lot of times intuitively, it does seem to suggest it will harm females more than males. But at the same side, when they 
legalized divorce in the USSR it is a culture which was mainly due to arranged marriage you would think that it would mainly be the females who got the divorces and it will benefit the females more than the males in that circumstance however what actually happened was that the males had started 70 percent of the divorces and then the females were even more worse off when divorce was allowed that's just a complete side note and, and in kind of just kind of saying that the kind of prediction predicting kind of the benefits or the 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 harms on both sides might be a bit kind of un- until it actually occurs it's very difficult to figure out what might happen in some sense because it could sometimes yeah, that, backfire that's why it was experientially it has been used very loosely uh, yes. um there but it could be that even take all things considered it affects both genders equally yeah um mm-hmm. but just with respect to i won't experience pregnancy right so yeah. that, there's mm-hmm. something definitely. to consider that mm-hmm. definitely now um i suppose this full potential thing perhaps could be part of the same gender equality discussion now finally Banning abortion puts women at risk of forcing them to use illegal slash more dangerous abortion um, facilities, perhaps. Of course, this touches more on the legal side of things, I suppose. What are your thoughts on this? So I um, I think, number one, let's just go ahead and grant the statistics. I don't want to argue about the statistics. Let's say that if we made abortion illegal, there would be a lot of illegal, unsafe abortions. I'm skeptical of that. I'm certain that there would be some, but I don't know the numbers. I'm ignorant of those statistics. But let's just grant worst case scenario. What this is doing is sort of um, presupposing a kind of consequentialist or utilitarian view. Um, There are going to be things that uh, I think a lot of people are going to be against independent of the consequences of Mm -hmm. making it illegal or illegal, right? Like, uh, I mean... There are going to be distasteful examples, but imagine human sex trafficking. Mm-hmm. You know, if you made that illegal, um, you know, well, you're going to have a whole what? I mean, there's. I, let's just let's just kind of stick with milder uh, stuff because some of the stuff is pretty sad. But like prostitution might be an example. Mm-hmm. There are a yeah. lot of people that are becoming pro. pro uh, you know, they want to make that illegal profession, and and it's not legal everywhere, but it's starting to change. But the point is, is that um, if you're let's let's just kind of presume that um, that it's not good for people to. I think the concern is this. I, you know, now that I think about it, prostitution is complicated too. But let's just put it this way. Ah, okay. Now I got a better example. I'm going to scratch out the mm-hmm. prostitution selling mm-hmm. your organs. That's that's the example. Okay, mm-hmm. it's illegal to sell your organs. Um, now, if you made it legal you could probably get rid of some of these black market cases. Mm-hmm. And in fact, maybe life would be a little bit better if there were a lot of black market cases. But the point is, is that we might think that that's the kind of issue where it exploits poor people for, um, you know, they'd be desperate enough to legally sell their kidneys. Um, it might, uh, we might just find it wrong, period, in, in a kind of a deontic sense independent of the consequences. The idea is that uh, people will say that um, not everything that we make illegal or legal is just going to be a function of its consequences. We're just going to be certain against certain things like selling your organs, pedophilia, sex trafficking. We're going to be against the, those in print in some kind of in principled way where even if we, if we made all the, some of these things legal, even if they were better consequence way down the road, we're still, you know, that doesn't justify us making them uh, legal. I think that's the idea. So 
Um, now, if you're a, a kind of a pure utilitarian, you might be very sensitive to this reason. So mm -hmm. I, I think a lot of my experiences is that a lot of pro-lifers don't are not coming from it in a utilitarian perspective. Yeah. They're coming from more of that kind of deontolog deontological view, like or a matter of duty and obligation, inherent rights, all of that stuff. Um, and so I think this is sort of begging the question against them. Mm -hmm. Yes, I agree. And I do think it somewhat kind of presupposes the idea that abortion is wrong in the first, is correct in the first place, because in some sense, it does say that banning abortion puts women at risk by forcing them to use illegal abortion. This is kind of saying, well, if something is good, you're trying to make it um, difficult. So as a result, people go to do the good through um, evil forces, but that seems to presuppose the thing is good in the first place. Because if you um, re replace this with murder, you could perhaps say banning murder puts women at risk or murder is at risk of forcing them to use illegal means of murdering. Like it kind of, I think the argument just doesn't hold very much as like an argument itself in, in some sense, because in order to have the argument be convincing in the first place, it seems to require the action to actually be good. Otherwise, if it was a wrong action, you wouldn't suggest that, well, you shouldn't ban it just because it becomes more dangerous, for example. Or we should give gun, like, gun violence people or like school shooters like, armor. Otherwise, they would be carrying out illegal gun shooting or something along those lines. But, but I do think it does kind of um, have to have some sort of worldview. And, if, and it might work on, as you say, on some um, utilitarians if they are indeed pro-life. But at the same time, unless there is some pre-established inconsistency within their values or their framework, I don't think this argument would be very um, convincing. Yeah, I see that. So I think we've gone over um, a few of the common pro-life, pro-choice arguments and also a bit of the moral framework. Before we end off on um, this live stream, is there anything that um, you want to add? Perhaps give me, give us your um, favorite or your, what you view as the strongest pro-life argument and the strongest um, pro-choice argument? Well, uh, I don't know. I, I think that as far as uh, the strongest in arguments on both sides, I'm going to think I'm, I think I'm going to abstain from that question. But uh, in general, I think I would give a bit of advice to those that want to enter the enter this debate. Um, be very sensitive to the fact that uh, to, to the way that language is being used on both sides. When people appeal to things like inherent rights, natural rights, rights, you know, the best thing I would suggest is to get, get really clear on what they're saying, right? You might, if they're saying something like bodily autonomy, there's an inherent right to bodily autonomy, ask them what they mean, ask them, is there like a kind of moral framework that you're operating on? Because I might have a different one. You know, um, a lot of cases they don't want to talk about that. Just don't, don't, I wouldn't be so quick to assume what the meaning of their terms, um, because if you do, you're, you're in for, um, a poor discussion you're going to be talking past each other and get very frustrated i i think that one of the ways that you know that you're i think you're treating the conversation well is if it starts to get a little boring and technical <laughs> um yeah. that people like the insults and the the rhetoric on both sides and, and miss the substance so uh, don't forget that the substance matters kind of click get a lot of clarity on what your per, your opponent means by what they're saying and where they're coming from before you you really adamantly disagree with anything because you may not disagree on anything. You might just be opposed to them and they might be opposed to you. And then that's it. Mm -hmm. I, I definitely agree. And also one last thing before we end off, I, I would like to say just to remember that you are dealing with real human beings. I mean, I 
even though I lean more on the pro-life choice side, uh, pro, what am I talking about? Pro-life side of the debate, I do think that it can get very insensitive at times. For example, if you go to an abortion clinic and people are clearly distraught going into having an abortion, they might actually agree with the pro-life choice. Otherwise, they wouldn't be that distraught. But they are distraught. I mean, perhaps going there with signs saying you're murdering babies isn't exactly the most loving or kind thing to do. So you, at the end of the day, we're all dealing with human beings and people are trying, I, I think, generally trying to find the, the, the path which best suits them in life and the, the path which they view is the most important one. And at the end of the day, we have to be sensitive to that. Whether you're pro-life or pro-choice, that's just something to keep in back of your mind. Hope you've enjoyed this video. Of course, Danny, is there anything you want to plug or anything you want to um, point um, anyone who's watching this to? Yeah, I do have a channel. It's called Phil Talk. It has a red logo. Um, thank you so much for having me, Josh. Um, I, I had fun. Um, no, yeah, I was, I'm very appreciative. Thanks for the invitation. No worries. Have a great day, everyone. Stay safe, my friends, and see you soon. Thanks for watching, and goodbye.